We're looking at the life of David, but not, the, not so much just him, our life. And what does it mean to be, have a life after God's own heart? What does it mean to have values? We're in a, in a generation arising now who are coming into the workspace now who are a value-driven generation. I would call myself a purpose-driven person, but now they're, they're really saying, I want to be in a workplace. It's not everybody, but generally speaking, a, a workplace that upholds good values, um, that can stand for something, that has a voice in society, that sticks up for the unjust and so on. It's, a, it's, a, um, it's an expectation now that society has not just value signalling, but, but taking care of those who can't take care of themselves and so on. And that's a good thing. And as Christians, we have to go way, way beyond this because now society without a God framework is starting to virtue signal to uphold moral value. It's almost like we've skipped a couple of generations uh, from the time where in the 40s, 50s, 60s, where the Christian ideal, the Judeo-Christian ethic was assumed to be the global societal ethic. That's gone now, but now we're refining values again. And it's the non-Christians who are advocating for justice uh, and values stronger than the Christians tend to be because the Christians have, have lost their voice in many ways and for many reasons. So it's fascinating, the turn of events there. But for the Christian person, values are more than beliefs. We've, we've tended to press into more the fact that the world knows who we are by what we believe. And so we lead with our beliefs. But they've got beliefs too. And you don't need to, be, need to be a Christian to have moral values, to have right and wrong. You don't need to be a Christian to do that. You never have and, and we can't own that space as exclusively ours. But what we do need to consider, because the world will look at Christians and go, they're the people who are supposed to know right and wrong, absolutely. But more than that, there's spiritual values. So not just intellectual values, not just values of ethics and morality, but what about spiritual values? Because the world's threatening to overtake that as well, fascinatingly. Because in the Western Christian framework, we haven't pressed or understood spiritual values. When I say spiritual values, I mean that the presence of God's Spirit in our life and, this, and us being spiritual beings can rely on God. His Spirit within us makes a difference in our life. And, and, the, and that reality changes the way we live our life. So we're not just trying to be good because I believe it's good. David believed in good things too. He believed adultery was wrong didn't stop him getting involved in adultery. The belief didn't make the fundamental difference to his life when it really mattered. When his passions and his desires overtook him, the beliefs didn't stop him. Values would. And so last week we saw that his values rose up like a fire in his soul when some big mouth, nine foot giant blasphemes God. He goes, we're not gonna be breathing the same oxygen for long, either he's gone or I'm gone. No record of him praying about that or getting God's guidance, he just went for it because it, it upset the fire in his soul. Different ramifications in the story with Bathsheba. So what does this value-driven thing do for us? Does it do anything for us? And I'd love us just to go there um, and challenge ourselves. Is my life an overtly, obviously, spiritual life? If it's not, is it a subversive? Is it covert? Am I reflective? Am I, am I allowing the Spirit to guide my life? Do I know what it means to get His strength and work from His strength? Do I know what it means to say, I can't do anything without Him of any worth? I can't bear any fruit without abiding in Christ? Is that been my story? Or do I just hang in there, be faithful, do the best I can, and, and that's, my, that's my Christian life? 
Very challenging, isn't it? But, but this is what it means in reality to, be, to differentiate a Christian from a non-Christian. It's not the ethics alone. It's this presence of God's Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So spiritual values are just as big a deal. So what is a spiritual person? What is a spiritual person? Someone who is engaged, influenced hopefully, someone who is engaged personally, for us, this is what a spiritual person is, with the presence of God. Now, there are non-Christians who would call themselves spiritual people. They watch rocks shake and they engage in the universe or whatever they do. But they, there, there's a, an SQ, a spiritual quotient um, that, that, that is batted around out there, people who are aware of the eternal. But when I'm talking about Christians, I'm talking about those of us who are aware of God's presence, engaging with God's presence, aware of their own spirit, not just their soul, aware of their spirit and the partnership of God in that space, where our life dynamics, the way we do life, is interwoven and integrated with the reality and the influence of God in our life. That's so unwestern. For many of us who've lived our religious life all our life, that will be brand new. But I'm telling you, it's normal. If you read the New Testament, that is normal Christian life. It's not that your, your beliefs are different. It's not that you know that there is a God somewhere. The devil knows that. But New, New Testament Christians, are the distinctive is the presence and activity of the Spirit in our life. And that's revolutionary. John 17, 21, Jesus says, May they also be in us, so talking about all of us, the disciples, may they also be in us, talking to God he is. So may we all be together in us, interwoven, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So there's, a, there's an apologetic, there's, a, there's an evangelistic essence to this saying the world will know that God is real because God's people are living from God, not just for God. Now he also said they'll, they'll, they'll know we are Christians by our love and they'll know us because we, we obey what he says, yep. But this can't be discounted either. So there's the words, the works, there's the wonder. This is all Christian life. So the world's meant to recognise us by the change that he's made and the change that he's making in our life. So is this my story? I need to ask this and consider it all the time, just as the rest of us do. It doesn't mean that we're just good people. It means that God's presence in our life changes things. It doesn't mean that things go right for us all the time. We, we suffer the same challenges and problems that everyone does. We get the same sicknesses and we all still die. But as we go through the whole journey, the difference is his, his presence is with me. His comfort gives me strength and courage. It means that we don't ever walk alone, but his presence is there guiding us. We don't live from our own strength, but we live from the strength that he gives us. That changes things, doesn't it? And it's very sobering if, we're, if we're, most of us are honest, we, if we reflect on our days, how much of it we can say, I did that, I got through that because God gave me strength to do that. So this is meant to be a value for us. The value is let God be God. Let God do what only God can do and what he's responsible for. And we concern ourselves about what, what we can be concerned about, which is, a, a, that list is a lot shorter then you'd give it credit for if we allow God to be God. So a classic example of letting God be God is the value of, and I'm going to just use this as a brief example, of the value of first fruits. It's a moral, ethical value, but it's also a faith value. So the, the, the idea of first fruits is God is first. We give, give to God first because He is first. 
God is either God or he's not God. He can't not be God. He's preeminent if I was a theologian. He, he is number one. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He can't not be Lord. So if that's true, it's true for my life. Jesus is Lord. So that means he is first. He can't not be first. So if he's first, that changes things. He's first in my budget. He's first in my time. He's first in my passion and my ambition, the things I long to see done. He gets preeminence over all of that. But it also means in a faith sense that I'm not relying on me. Because he's first, I can set aside financially or time or passion. I can set that aside in faith that he gives me everything that I need. And as I'm faithful, he seems to give me more because I've proven faithful because I'm using it for his purposes and he's first. So it's an ethical view, but it's also a faith step in that it changes my life and it's important to me. It's easy for me to say that. I don't have anything to do with my life besides family and God stuff. You know, I'm the, I'm the church guy. But this is, is more difficult for yourselves. You're not professional Christians. How does, this, how does this work out for us with all the challenges that you face? So having spiritual values like this is a faith step. It's important for me and you to, to know that God provides. God does what only he can do. It requires that I don't grasp everything at life in my own strength because I'm not sure whether God's going to show up and help me or not. And I'll let God be God. And it means that in those moments of our life, and this normally it comes to grips in those darkest moments, those moments where I'm weakest, I'm tiredest, I'm most conflicted, and I'm under my deepest challenge, and my flesh will just want to cry out, God, I can't see where you're at. I'm going to take charge here. I'm going to make this happen because if it's, if it's going to be, it's up to me. And at that moment, we can shift the whole perspective of life. Is this a value for me or is it not a value for me? I can act on trust or I can not act on trust. So let's use uh, the life of David to flesh this out and get an example of what this looks like. And I want to zoom in now on this moment of David's life post Goliath that we looked at last week, where the king has gotten a dose of insecurity. He's heard the rumour that David's going to be king one day. Doesn't like the sound of that. Um, and so, uh, you know, all the people around him start feeding this line, David's going to overthrow you. Uh, he's after you. Um, you better go get this guy. So. So out of all that, he begins to pursue David. David's been slandered. The mud has stuck and it's unjust, but he's out of there. So he, he goes and flees into the desert caves. And perhaps you can identify a little bit with this. You probably haven't had to go hiding in a cave any time recently. But you may, you may have been in an emotional cave. You may, have, you may know what it's like to be slandered. I won't get a show of hands. I nearly did. Uh, if you've been slandered, if, if someone said stuff about you while you're not there and you can't defend it and they've, and they've just had a good old go about you, it might be completely inaccurate, it completely unjust, but they've done that, the mud has stuck and that rumour spreads and, and it starts getting fueled and suddenly, hang on, you're the victim of something that doesn't even exist. It, it didn't even happen. But now your whole life has been torn apart by someone else's agenda or they're just there bitterly just to say words without any, uh, anything coming back at them about that. And you've paid the price of that. It's a terrible moment. It's the most unjust. It's, it's incredibly hurtful. It's unfair. And you are being penalised for doing nothing. And yet this happens every day. And if I did get a show of hands, there'd be quite a number of us who know what that feels like. Where the rumour mill just spreads. People don't, they'd rather talk about you than come to you. Um, 
they, 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 they think they know all, all about you, they know your motives, they know why you've done what you've done or they make up things. It's just a terrible thing and you, and you can't defend that. You can't get on social media and say all those things that people are, th- that's not true. It's like, what are you guilty of, man? And so David's suffering the same PR nightmare, so he, he has to go. He has to go. And so he finds himself out in the desert, in the, in the caves of the wilderness there, and Saul hears about where he's at. Someone's dobbed him in, and he brings all his army to try and take David out. So we pick it up there in 1 Samuel 24, verse 2. It says, so Saul took 3,000, 3,000, there's only one David, man, honestly, 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, that's not, that's not the Sunshine Coast sort of accommodation five-star. This is a, the crag. Who'd, who'd get Airbnb for that place? The crags of the wild goats. And so he came to the sheep pens along the way and a cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. So that's a, a Bible way of saying that caves were the place apparently back then. Um, don't walk into a dark cave if you don't know who's been there before you sort of thing, you know. But David's in the back. Him and his guys, however many they are, they've all gone, they're already in the cave in the darkness hiding away. So David and his men were far back in the cave. Awkward moment, hey? And the men said, this is the day. I would have said probably something very different, but they said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, no commentator can find anywhere in Scripture where God has actually said that. Um, so we don't know whether that's just a rumour mill made up by his men or what it is, or whether God spoke and we have no record of it. But that's what they, they start pleading. Oh, it's a God thing. You ever heard that? Some, something happens and you hear someone say, oh, this is such a God thing. And you sit there and go, I'm not really sure it's a God thing. This might be a you thing taking advantage of a convenient circumstance. This is one of those moments. So all the guys are at him. Hey, David, this is a God moment. Look at this, baby. There he is, defenceless, got his skirt up and you got the sword and here, have mine, you know, and uh, take him out. And then all our troubles will be over. One moment, all that's wrong with David's life could end right there. And, and you can imagine the temptation that there would have been. All the voices are saying, do this, because they're all in pain with you. This guy's in the wrong. He's come to you. And it's this opportunity when you're at your very weakest and you, you, you've got to be tempted to say, yeah, the sword's in my hand. But then it's in those moments, it's in those moments when you're tired, when you're worn out, when you're, you're being stretched, you're out of your comfort zone, when the devil will come to you and offer you, and, and it's at that moment, it's not what you believe that matters half as much as what you really, really value. And so David's value was something very different. But in those dark moments when you're vulnerable, it's almost like, how wrong could it be? Maybe this is God's plan for me. It doesn't make sense, but I know His Word goes against it, but maybe I can just make it happen. Maybe I can slander back. Maybe I can say something to correct the balance here. And the temptation is to, to make it right. Here's my chance. I can make this right now. I can stop all this right now. I, it's all been wrong and I can correct it with one simple thing. Sometimes we just get, we get an opportunity to get back at someone just to get back at them. We know what they've been doing. We know what they've been saying and they've brought all these people along now and you walk through a shopping centre and you know this person, they can't even look at you in the eye because of something someone else has said. And you can make it right now. You can fix it, you think, right there and then. And I can get back at them while I'm at it. Or it might be a sense where you can take control of your life again. It's like everyone else has been running my life, now I can take it back. It's so tempting. 
I can make my life easier. All I have to do is take this offer. All I have to do is sign this bit of paper, subscribe to this thing, whatever whatever it's going to be, it'll just make my life easier. It's not going to hurt anyone, but it goes against the values. And so if David was on his own, if God wasn't real, or if God was impotent, if Jesus wasn't Lord in our sense, if God wasn't God, what if, what if his view at that point was that, look, God is real, I don't question that, but, but I don't think he's going to act in this situation. He's left me alone, this is mine to sort out. What if, he, what if he thought that? And you might have thought that, as I think all of us come to that point where we wonder, have you never questioned? Have I got this wrong? Why, does a, why do a thousand people shout at me that there is no God and I'm the only one in the crowd who says that there is? Maybe I've got this wrong. How, when was the last time I saw God do something in my life? And all you've got to go back on is the apologetic that you've leaned on all your life where you know the verses, but, but now someone can counter that and question that. And you go, I, want, I wonder if I've got this right. All of us go through those moments. And it's a matter of how quick can I go back and remember hang on, I've seen what I've seen. I know what I know. I know who I know and I can't unsee that. See, my blog feed, my my social media feed for some reason, maybe maybe it's mic'd into my phone, I don't know, but I get all these these atheistic Richard Dawkins and these guys just mocking the Christians. How how can these fools believe in a God? You know, and off they go and and I I just look at them and go, there is nothing you can say. There is just nothing you can say that can change my view of what I know. It's not because of I have an intellectual value, because you, you may question that, but you haven't experienced what I've experienced. You don't know who I know. I've seen him do this. I've heard him talk to me this morning. I've gotten through this and this and this because he's given me the strength. He's altered circumstances that could never have happened any other way. I can't unsee that. I've prayed for people and seen them rise up from cancers and all sorts of stuff. Hey, do you expect me to unsee that because you, just, because you haven't experienced that? It would be like someone walking in here today who doesn't know me or my family. Or you've heard a rumour this guy talks about being married to, to that woman, Trish. Oh, I've never seen Trish. Where is she? The front rows, she's not there. It's because she's, is she up there? She's up there in the back. She likes to be present quietly, you know. But you might come in and go, well, I've never met this woman, Trish. I don't think she exists. Hey, Trish, if you're there, speak to me now. Have, see? But, but I know Trish, she doesn't talk to people like that. And, and God doesn't engage like that either. He, he engages with those with an inside voice. He engages those who are seeking after him. Not those who with some arrogant spirit go, hey, I demand God of the universe, speak to me, your lowly creation. That, that'll never work. He's in, he engages in relationship. And so... We get tempted to think sometimes, if God is not there, if God's not going to act, it's up to me to act. It's up for me to do. And it derails our life. So how do you know? When that happens to you, how do you know when the questions start? For me, I bounce back to two scriptures. If I'm not remembering what he's done, these two scriptures, Romans 8, 16 and 1 John 3, 24. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. How do you know? Because you know. And that, genuinely, that is my experience. It may not be everyone's, not all of us find it as easy as that to engage spiritually because we're left brainers or whatever. I I understand that. But we can exercise that part of our soul to engage with God and know 
The main reason I know is not through a cognitive apologetic. The main reason I know is I know my life was transformed and he speaks to me. I know his voice and he's real. It's an experience. 1 John 3, 24, and this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. There's no greater apologetic. A man with an experience is never at the mercy of somebody with an argument. So the challenge is if we're not an experiential type of person working that through, and that's a whole other session for another day. Come to one of our courses and we'll work with you on that kind of thing. But God's looking for people of spirit and truth who understand the spirit. And, and knowing this is no excuse not to know the word of God, not to be grounded in great theology. Where Jesus said, I'm looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. And if you want to hear what God's saying, you need to know what God's already said. That's the greatest framework for that. If when you know God's truth, and Jesus said that the Spirit will lead you into truth, and the truth is, will always lead you to the Spirit. And so these things work together. And so as a church, that's what, that's what we uphold as a value. But the reality and value of God with us will begin to confront a secular Christianity, a practical atheism, a secular culture. It will challenge that. And it will, it will take you down paths that otherwise you wouldn't normally go. In moments sort of big and small, it'll, it'll affect your choices and your outcomes. And it happened for David's guy. They say, here's your chance, take it. God acting looks like you grabbing that sword and killing this guy. And David would be, would be grappling with it because his core value is God's the one who raises and lowers kings. This isn't a job for me. Woe behold anyone who touches the Lord's anointed. This is his core value. There was just no way known he was going to take. He felt guilty enough just tearing the cloak off the guy. He was convicted just about that. But if God was far off, if God was impotent, David's initiative would have been what happened there. So I wonder if there's a Saul, there's a Saul of some type in your life. Is there, and Saul isn't always a person. But wherever there's a sense of calling, there's a promise on your life. Um, sometimes it's a destiny. Sometimes it's... What God's purposes in your life, wherever that exists, quite often there's a soul that threatens and constrains that. There's a sense of I'm being, I'm being throttled back, I'm being controlled, I'm being contained. This person, this system, this, this financial trouble, this relationship that I'm in is holding me back. This thing seems to have control of God's plans for my life. It hounds you, it harasses you. But the calling on David's life, and this is the principle that really matters, if he'd have taken that sword and killed Saul at that moment, he would have become king within days. But the King David that that would have been would not have been the King David that that nation needed. He was not ready. And the gap between the, appointing, the, the anointing and the appointing, which is quite often, as David experienced, uh, 14 years or whatever it would be, the preparation, the promise is there, the Saul exists, and then there's the, the proper appointing of that, is the process where you become and grow in character and capacity and moral fibre to be the person that, that requires to do that job. If he'd have come into that job early, he would never have gotten away with it, and his journey of growth would have been extended far, far longer than 14 years that he had to go through in the end. He would have cut short by taking into his own hands, he would have cut short the method that God uses to grow us. So I wonder what our soul is. A short-term gain can sometimes end up with a long-term pain. But allowing God to be God in this sort of situation leads us into a whole other path. It leads us into a type of freedom that 
those who haven't taken this path will never know. Those who've never activated courage rooted in values will, never, will, will not know what I'm talking about now. But it's the freedom of faith. And it's not the freedom of faith that God can or God will do a particular thing. It's not freedom, for example, if I needed a healing. It's not freedom that God will heal me. That's faith. That's a top of faith. It's good faith. Nothing wrong with that. I'm talk, but I'm talking about the freedom of if that doesn't happen, I'm still fully in reliance on God and I'm fully free in that experience. See, what David experienced next when he'd let Saul go, he was no longer under bondage to that man. In fact, he was so free after Saul left the cave and there he is with his 3,000 young men against whatever number he could fit in his cave with him. And they're all misfits anyway, the scriptures describe later on. He just gets out of there and goes, Oi, Saul! You know, I was there, mate. I could have taken you out. And he, what he did there, we think that's brave of him. That was really brave because he was completely exposed now. 3,000 against that small number. He was done at that moment. If, he, if that had gone wrong, but he was prepared to die because he was free. He was no longer being pursued in his heart. Now it's like, kill me or don't kill me. But I've done the right thing and I've lived for my values. Whether it costs me everything or it costs me nothing, it's of no consequence to me. That's a value-driven life. And that's freedom. And, you can, and we can experience that freedom if we live in accordance to God's ways. But look at Saul's response in verse 19. When he sees what this guy does, he doesn't go and kill him. He says, when a, when a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you've treated me today. And I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Big statement in public from a king like Saul. Did it change anything? No. Did he let him be king? No. Did he take him on as a, and mentor him and help him get the job? No. He just left him in his goat cave and said, come and see us when, you're dead, when, I, when I'm dead. You know, it was like, it was a, a fascinating situation. It didn't change anything. All it changed was that he wasn't now being pursued in his soul or in reality, but he was still in exile. He still had to go through what he went through. And this letting... Letting God be God like that. We find freedom, but it takes us down this journey of what I'd, I'd probably, it's maybe an inadequate description, but painful faith. It's faith in the midst of pain. It's a faith that gets you through pain, but doesn't take it away. And it's a faith that's deeper than a, a sort of a cheap denial that God's going to fix everything. Because God's not going to fix everything. He never promised that he would until he comes back a second time. Life's as painful for us as it is for everybody else. But there's a painful faith that gets us through those moments. This week I was with a, with a friend of mine and, and, and many of us will be travelling a journey with friends who are uh, in the same journey of cancer and this man's in, taking a journey through that. Um, it's looking like it's a, it's, it's a good chance of a positive outcome there, but it's not always that case. And, and, um, and it, nothing quite confronts you like a journey of health that, that you are out of control of and the, and the outcome is not clear. It could be anywhere from full restoration and remission through to uh, a funeral and you don't know and you've got faith for God to heal you know he can you're not sure whether he will sometimes we take another step and we're convinced that he will and that's great too and we see that and sometimes we do and sometimes we don't but what, I, what struck me and it was a weak changing statement that he made when he, he was talking about the journey and, he, and his words were I'm glad I didn't choose a path of avoidance or denial. And I understood what he meant. Where sometimes we say, it's okay, 
God will heal. God, and it's like the Christian way because we don't know how to have a conversation with someone who's going through such a difficult journey. What's, what can I do? Oh, I can give you hope God's going to heal you. Well, that's great if God's told you that he's going to heal them. If he hasn't, we need to be very wise about what we do and don't say. We really do. If God tells us he's going to heal us, he will. You take it to the bank. If he hasn't said he's going to heal us, then we need to navigate a whole other journey that he can, but we're unsure of the outcome. So he said, I'm glad I didn't choose a path of avoidance or denial. It's allowed me to find peace in the storm and rely on him in each moment. What was he saying? He said, I'm free. In the middle of all this, my faith has now given me freedom. No matter what happens in the whole spectrum of what's possible, I'm free. This changes your life. And once you know this freedom, you're free indeed, as, as Jesus would say. You might feel defenceless, you might feel out of control, but you're free. And there's a, there's a release in your spirit that goes with that. See, when you're, when you're truly free like this, when your courage can drive you, where your, where your values determine what you do, no one actually has control of you except God himself. And you're submitting to his values and you're living from his strength. This is where his strength really comes because you can't do this without his strength. And it gives you the ability sometimes to go against the grain. And sometimes we say, oh, I, can't, I can't go against the grain because if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to get uh, persecuted in my workplace or whatever it may be. And there's a time and there's a way to do that. But it allows you to go against the grain when you know there's a thing to say and there's something to stand up for or someone to stand up for, even though it's going to cost you. And you'll advocate for what matters regardless because you're free. And if it costs you your job, it costs you your job. But you're trusting God because God, let God be God. You can leave a massive outcome in God's hands. It just says, I can't, this is bigger than me. And, and my worrying and my conniving and my striving is not going to fix it. It's not going to make it any better. God, this, this is yours. And you leave this massive outcome in his hands and you become responsible for the response of your soul. Sometimes it means that you can remove your hand from the sword of justice. And this is often the hardest one for us. When we're, we've been slandered, we've been misunderstood, or someone's done something against us, and it's obvious, and it's obvious to us and possibly everybody else, but we take that sword of justice and we want to we wanna pierce that sword on our life. But we realise the value is God's the bringer of judgment. It's God who judges. It's God who brings justice. And so I can respond not out of anger or fear or retribution, but I can leave it in his hand and I can let God be God. In my life, there's been many instances where you get the opportunity to incite rebellion. You know, it might be in your workplace, you know, where, where the boss is a, a numbskull of some sort. He's done, done terrible things and, and all the grumblers can come together and you can say, Let, and you start to form a posse and you want to begin to lobby from this place. You know, you can, you can subvert leadership. And um, it happens in churches all the time. Not this one yet, thankfully. But um, it's, it's early in the day, you know. <laughs> Anything can happen. But this, this ability to have faith says, no, my heart always, all of us, our heart needs to be in submission to someone, into something. And Romans 13 too is very powerful where Paul says, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those do, who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And even though you feel like sometimes the person, they're doing the wrong thing and I'm doing the right thing, still we need to submit our hearts in authority because in, in essence, we're submitting our hearts to God. 
And, I, and Peter writes the same thing in, in, in his epistles. And he's saying, you know, honour the king. He's talking about the guy that's been trying to kill him. Saying, no, we've got to still keep things as, as our heart should still be able to submit to authority. And so when I've got these values, it gives me the courage to live that humble way. And it just takes all the load of dealing with all this stuff off my hands. And it leads to a longer path, but it leads us to the promised land. It leads us to the land that God has for us, where he creates and does in us what only he can do. It's that painful faith. So as I invite the band on up, I, just, I would like us now, there's only so much I can say in this sense, but to really consider how do I need to let God be God in my life? What, what have I owned a, a bit too much? Is it my income? Uh, is it my Australian residence? There's a lot of us here grappling with that. The fear of, of uh, income or career paths that aren't going to work out. Fear of sickness, relationships breaking down. All the things that, that we grapple with in our very, very complicated lives. Have I not let God be God? Have I taken the responsibility on myself to worry about what's God's to worry about in those words? Am I free? Because if I'm free, I'm free to give, I'm free to love, I'm free to rejoice, and I'm free not to worry because God's got it and God is God. Let's pray together. In the darkest of dark caves, we can still have a light heart. Father, we want to make room for you again in this life that we have. So I just want to ask us all, is there anything in life that's pursuing you? Maybe it's a, a sickness. Maybe it's a horrible person. Maybe it's a sense of lack of, of money or time. Might be a crummy boss, whatever it would be. Something's pursuing you and it's, it's annoying your life and it's forcing you into a corner, into your cave of the goats. It's forcing you in that place in your heart because you feel like they've got control. Father, we just want to give and acknowledge that you have control. You are God. We want to let you be God. Father, we give that situation that's too big for us and we give it back to you. It's yours to be concerned about. Lord, we give you all of our life. And Lord, with the life and the strength and the choices that you have given us, Lord, how do we ensure that it's based on the reality that God is God. You provide, you vindicate, you redeem, you promote, you open doors that no one can open, you really do. But you shut doors as well. Father, give us the faith to let God be God in our life. And you'll know, guys, you'll know because peace will reign again joy and faith and the strength to be who God's called you to be. Lord, I pray for a sense of freedom, Lord, a sense of faith and a sense of peace. You are God. You are strong. And you have a path for all of us to take to become who you're calling us to be. We rejoice that you are God and you're doing a new thing in us. Let it be in your way. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.